This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon first bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hi, I hope that y'all have been enjoying First Bite as much as I've been enjoying making this and doing all the research behind the scenes. I'd love to uh, meet with y'all live and I have some upcoming lecture tours that you can catch me at. And I just wanted to share a little bit in advance so that way you can get it on your calendars. So on April 5th, 2019, I will be at the Arizona Speech Hearing Association in Phoenix And their conference this year is at the Sheraton Crescent Hotel. And on that Friday, I'll be presenting three lectures all around early intervention and pediatric feeding and swallowing. And the following weekend, I'll be at the Minnesota Speech Hearing Association in Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'll be presenting on Friday and Saturday, April 12th and 13th of 2019. And their conference this year is at the Hyatt Regency. So please be sure to stop by and say hi if you're out in Phoenix and or a week later in Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to go from hot to cold in about a week's time frame. But whoop, whoop, I will see y'all in the spring. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Colatown, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hi, 
Welcome back to First Bite, Fed, Fund, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional category, and we are talking all things SLP versus SLPA scope of practice. What, 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 said most of you. Some of y'all currently work with SLPAs. Some of y'all might even be SLPAs, but there is a fair few of y'all out there that haven't even heard of SLPAs. Don't worry, you're not a lone friend. As it currently stands, only some states recognize or provide licenses for SLPAs. Further confounding things, there is not a current consensus among those states as to what the minimal requirements are for an SLPA state-issued license. For example, is it a bachelor's or an associate's degree? It gets a touch bit more confusing that SLPAs do not currently have a standardized certificate from ASHA, whereas CCC SLPs do hold our certificate. Personally, I have run across some SLPs and SLPAs that were unclear of the scope of practice line between the two. And trust me, I too have been concerned about the delineation as to what an SLP versus an SLPA can perform clinically. Clear as mud, huh? Well, I got some fantastic news. ASHA is actively working to create a national level of certification for SLPs and has currently a detailed description of SLP versus SLPA scopes of practice on their website. On that note, we have the lovely Crystal Murphy Holden, MA, CCC, SLP, Director of Distance Education, Clinical Instructor with the University of South Carolina. And she's with us today to enlighten us all as to where the line is between the two and where our profession is headed. On a personal note, this woman has mentored my soul for years on the Skisha board, and I am humbled by her friendship, blessed to have her support, and grateful for her wisdom. So um, before my Irish start leaking, and I'm going to have another sip of tea, um, Crystal, take it away, baby. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Michelle. It's good to be with you. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about myself. I um, got my undergrad and graduate degrees at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, um, undergrad in speech and hearing science and master's in speech language pathology. Um, and so I grew up in Tennessee as well. So nice. I'm a mountain girl and yeah. I think you are too. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Enjoyed that. Um, After graduation, I've worked in a variety of um, facilities and with different agencies from um, residential facilities for individuals with mental disabilities um, and done some private practice work. Also worked uh, for a community clinic, university clinics. And um, so had the only place I think I've never worked directly other than having floor privileges was at a hospital. You're serious. Yeah. I, I honestly thought you just came from the schools. No, I didn't know. No, I spent 20 years in the schools, um, two different districts in this area, and um, came to the university full time after 20 years. Nice. So are you still a Vols or they have adopted you into a Gamecock? Where, where do you stand? Um, I still pull for Tennessee, but <laughs> we do attend the University of South Carolina games. And so there's only one game I haven't been converted to. <laughs> I just had to check. That's all. Yeah. Uh, I've been at the University of South Carolina um, in my current positions since 2004. Um, but even for 12 years before that, served as an adjunct clinical educator. Okay. Okay. Wow. Mm. I, I have, I have a lot left to work towards then. Friend. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a topic um, that, you know, is very dear to me um, because I have had um, personal concerns um, for years about um, where the scope lied, laid, I don't really teach children to talk. I teach them to eat. So (laughs) forgive me for my redneck English out there. All right. So um, thank you for for doing this. I'm going to go right into it. All All right. right. So as it currently stands, subject to change with upcoming ASHA regulations um, that are going to include SLPA certification, can you please describe concerns about the current scope and practice of an SLPA? 
And in that light, are they allowed to participate in evals, plan of care developments, and feeding and swallowing disorders? Okay. Well, first, I'd like to say that I am absolutely thrilled that ASHA is moving in the direction that it is. Um, and having the scope of practice for SLPAs that it has yes. um, right now. And I'm already encouraging people to refer to that. Mm -hmm. um, as far as concerns, of course, with any scope of practice, the big concerns are people not staying within their lanes and staying within that scope. Um, and of course, the ASHA guidelines and the scope that ASHA has provided is a wonderful tool. But of course, the state licensure laws, if any, you know, if the states do have those, um, is going to be what people have to abide by first. And so because there's the legality with that, but in the, um, with referencing the ASHA scope of practice, I hope that will serve as a guide to status, well, to licensure boards um, across the country and that they will incorporate the scope that ASHA has developed. Let, what, so let me, okay. let me, so let me just translate that because I've had numerous conversations with Crystal. So I follow her rapid fire pace. Um, so what that means is that say, for example, if you're an SLP, most likely your state issued license is already built upon the ASHA scope of practice and the ASHA licensure. Um, it would be good if it is. If it is, yes. But, ideally. but they don't have to, but ideally, yes. Yes. So with the advancement of an SLPA certificate at the national level, right. it would be ideal if the state license was predicated exactly. and built on that. Okay. Exactly. Because the work is done mm -hmm. and it's excellent work and it's an excellent scope. So what are my concerns? Um Beyond the fact of staying within the lane, there are several things that cannot be done that individuals are restricted from. Um, of course, I've already mentioned with ASHA um, and with that scope of practice, which is well-defined. Um, and just to give a, an example of a few things um, that SLPAs can never identify themselves as an SLP. So it's imperative that they always are um, identified to patients, to families, um, to everyone involved, even staff at an agency, that they are an SLPA. Now, would I have seen people say, oh, no, that's the speech teacher or that's the speech therapist, not the SLPA. Right. Are they allowed to call themselves that um, with the licensure laws within each state will have defined the different titles that would come under that. Um, and so it may be speech language pathology assistant. It may be um, speech language pathology technician. You know, there are many okay. different um, descriptions, I guess, that can be used for that. But it is not the SLP. And so that misrepresentation cannot take place. Um, another concern is SLPAs being involved in feeding therapy. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge, huge problem. Um, the For states that have licensure laws, hopefully this is already defined. But I will use, for example, in South Carolina, um, it is not defined. And so, um, and that's so, because our license has not been updated right. in an extended period of right. time. And so with SLPAs being newer, um, as far as licensees, then the, you know, there's always growth mm -hmm. with that. And, um, so that's another factor. Um, also with, you know, involvement in swallow therapy, that even though it is always the um, licensed CCC SLP's responsibility to, um, to oversee, and not just to oversee, but in other words, it is their treatment. It is their plan of care. It is always the licensed or CCC SLP's service delivery. Um, except that the SLPA can only function under the direction of and under the supervision of the CCC SLP and licensed SLP. So when we run across um, 
SLPAs that are doing feeding therapy on the grounds that it's a sensory component and they're not really working on bolus management, but they're working on progressing the child through touching and feeling different senses and flavors and textures. My concern has been, but eventually that turns into a bolus. Because eventually, at one point in time, that food will reach their lips and they will swallow it. Hopefully, it will go down the right tube. Right. And that exits their realm of their scope because they are not trained. That's outside of their skilled clinical instruction. Right. And also outside, along that same line, also outside of the scope is any decision-making. Yes. So that's another huge factor with that. Okay. So when you say decision-making, my takeaway for that is they can't say, hey, we're going to change this goal. Hey, we're going to reshape this plan of care because, and then just free willy-nilly do it. Right. Um, There can be no revision by the SLPA of the plan of care. Okay. Treatment plan, plans of care that is not within their purview. Now, I uh, never witnessed this, but was told that SLPAs can write the plan of care and then the seed SLP can just sign off on it. No, Um, they cannot develop a plan of care. The SLPA cannot, and neither can they develop a treatment plan. They can only, within their scope, can only implement or provide services that have been developed, formulated by the CCC SLP and licensed SLP. So what it boils down to is that whoever the SLPA is under the SLP, they really need to have amazing open communication so that the fully seed SLP knows how that child is functioning and progressing so that when that 90 day plan of care is due on top of in addition to doing their supervisory visits, they fully capture like what the child is capable of and the progression, regression and or stagnation the child has done in therapy. Yes. And the SLPA um, can collect data of observed behaviors, but that has to be communicated to the supervisor. Mm -hmm. And because every judgment, every revision has to be the full responsibility of the SLP. I'm just thinking historically SLPs and SLPAs, we specialize in communication, but we also kind of suck at communication. Right. <laughs> so sometimes. Yep. So um, to all the SLPs and that are doing supervision and SLPAs out there, um, kudos for you. And I know some really good books if you need to work on communication skills, because I too have struggled there once or twice in my life. Right. Another comment I'd like to make is that as, whether there already is a licensure um, law that covers SLPAs, it is my sincere hope that the ASHA document for SLPA scope of practice will always be used as best practice guidelines. Yes. Yes. I totally concur with that. Mm. Okay. Now our state has unique and specific criteria for current SLPA scope of practice and supervision and does not allow for supervisory visits to be conducted electronically via cell phone footage. However, This is probably a clause elsewhere as well, so like in other states. Can you describe to me some potential HIPAA violations um, with that approach and why it's not safe? Also, I want to piggyback on that. How frequently in our state should that supervisory visit be occurring? Okay. Um, Let me address the um, cell phone footage first. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it is patient um, video, Photos, um, anything that is reflecting the face mm-hmm. already comes under protected patient information. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to say first and foremost that, that that is taking place. And so that's a first flag. Also, any transmission of 
information, which is patient information, Mm -hmm. would also be in violation. Um, A cell phone is a personal device. Mm -hmm. And so for anything to be stored, that also is another area, not just of concern, but it would be another area in violation because there is no security Mm-hmm. with that. Um, and of course, with transmission, there would not be encryption, you know, so even with billing, um, you know, when patient billing, that all always has to take place um, encrypted. Mm-hmm. And so nothing can be sent um, in that way. For, um, of course, HIPAA, you know, I've already mentioned, um, FERPA also becomes an What's issue. What's FERPA? All right. FERPA. Um, FERPA is the um, federal um, federal guideline that has to do with um, students or in education. And so any student in schools, any um, school age person who served, even with baby net, that is an educational umbrella. And so FERPA also is going to cover that too. So in some cases, patients and clients are actually coming under both. Okay. So baby net is our birth to three. So the way I put that and compartmentalize that in Michelle land is that HIPAA is the medical protection like patient um, protection and FERPA is special education protection or student or students. Mm Yeah. But like birth and up for Mm -hmm. our little ones. That's, that's how it makes sense in my little head. Right now, when you talked about encryption, uh, folks, I know personally, I pay extra every month to use a secure email server just to be able to email Uh, documents back and forth to my referral coordinator, to case managers, to nurses, to whomever, but I pay extra to have that. And one thing that I have often wondered is uh, when folks are transmitting, if they don't use a protected server, and I mean, I I pay like $25 a month. That's one of those hidden expenses when you own your own private practice that you need to make sure And a lot of early interventionists, bless them, service coordinators, they're young, they don't know, they are super quick just to rapid fire out text messages with patient name and identifier information. And they, they don't know because they come to us without, you know, HIPAA or FERPA being like pummeled into them, which if you're a speech pathologist or speech pathology assistant listening, every single one of you should have known of HIPAA. You get a free pass on FERPA because I didn't know about it until Crystal told me about it. So whoop, whoop. Um, And there was one other thing when you film at a university, because I know often sessions are filmed and or recorded such that clinical supervisors can come back at a university and analyze uh, the student's progress with the patient or client later. Right. That's under universities and colleges have a very secure in-house network. It's backed up. They're supposed to, and we have to. Yes. So, yes. yes. But most private practices that go about this, they don't have that. So that's one thing that you need to ask uh, when you are looking into employment or considering taking on a position as a SLP with their C's to work over or with an SLPA. If that is that question, if this is posed to you, oh, you can just do a supervisory visit via cell phone or recordings. These are all those questions. Right. And even um, you've brought up some really good points there, but even phone calls to patients, if you are, if you have um, a phone, a mobile phone that is provided by your agency and it only goes through the secure network, Mm -hmm. um, it would probably be considered an exchange account. Mm -hmm. Um, But so if it's going through that way and has the protections in place, you're still looking at when you're talking about records or access to records is one thing. When you're making phone calls, you're still calling from a device that you're walking around with, Mm -hmm. which means that you have access to names, Mm -hmm. addresses, Mm -hmm. 
possibly, you know, that and enough right there is enough for concern. Mm -hmm. But then what other information, you know, that can't be stored on a device, just as photos and videos are still, you know, personally identifiable information. So is the name and Mm -hmm. address and phone number. And, and one thing you do need to make sure, everybody loves to see the business page that has the cute, fun photo pictures. Like, that's a biggie. I mean, like, Lord Almighty, have you seen my Instagram account? But I make sure that I get per- written permission for every single um, child. And you have to update that annually. If y'all listen to the episode with uh, Andy Larry on private practice pet peeves from help me out. I think it was a month ago. I think it was February 5th because okay. it was right before Skisha. Um, she specifically says that we are supposed to update patient permission forms once a year annually. So don't you know that after her and I had that conversation, I made sure all my forms were updated. Right. <laughs> yes. And um, having the written documentation and permission on what happens with the the patient's information. Mm -hmm. And so that also needs to be Mm -hmm. updated yearly too. So if you're releasing information at a parent's request. And and the HIPAA forms, y'all, these are, you know, it's, Asha has a book on how to have a private practice and I read it, but I swear I didn't read all those details, but I think my book might be a little bit older. (laughs) So squirrel, there's another squirrel there, Crystal. All right. Back on track. Where were we? Well, we were talking about, um, security and also, you know, identifiable information, what actually makes the situation um, a potential violation. Yes. Yes. Okay. So those are concerns. I had already mentioned um, that, you know, not just school age, but also baby net is considered educational. And our baby net is what our state calls our birth to three. Every state has a, a different name for it. Um, in Virginia, it's called infants, um, toddlers, Infants, families, toddlers, or infants, toddlers, families. So every state has a different name for it. Right. So. And Michelle, another thing you were asking about um, concerns about scope of practice. Um, of course, my first comment is that everyone would stay within their lane and stay within the scope. And that's always a, a big concern. But when you're looking at, um, at individual states' licensure laws, um, you know, how well is the... Um, how well are the restrictions and the definitions included Mm -hmm. and are they adequate? Um, And then I've already mentioned the SLP involvement in swallow therapy and the concerns about Mm -hmm. that. Um, And then also treatment um, of involving SLPAs with the medically fragile patient. Mm. And that's another huge factor. Um, A big thing to remember and with ASHA's scope of practice is that number one, SOPAs never function independently and do not have their own caseloads. And that is a concern as well because in many locations, I think SLPAs, especially in states where bachelor's level clinicians have been able to practice before, that um, the tendency is to think, well, they've been able to do this before, they should be able to do this with a level of independence. And so having a having a separate caseload is in itself making independent practice by nature. So the SLP, who is the CCC or licensed SLP, it is always their caseload, his or her caseload. And the SLPA is always working under the direction of, under the supervision of that supervising SLP. Okay, so this happened to me in Virginia where I was working as a speech teacher Right through um, Virginia has um, Delve, Distance Learning for Virginia Educators. And so we were allowed to run caseloads as a speech teacher. I think that was the technical title on my DOE cert or something like that. Um, and one of my colleagues was actually a bachelor's level um therapist right. that had up until the changes been allowed to do everything. Evals, plan and care street. She was possibly one of the kindest women I have ever met in my entire life. And she also had a strike 
uh, a natural gray streak, which was just, you know, we totally bonded. Right. But she said it was very frustrating because she went from making all the decisions and being able to write the IEPs and do all of the billing to when that law changed that you have to have your master's or be pursuing your master's. She's like, I'm too old for this. I'm paying for my own children to go to college. She's like, I'm not going to go back. But then she had to work under a ma- and that she felt very, very frustrated and belittled. And, you know, at the time I was in master's in a program. I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. In retrospect, I can't fathom the wind being taken out of your sails like that. However, our profession has grown exponentially. The seed level scope of practice is so much more. Like USC is known for its literacy program. Honest to goodness, I didn't have a literacy class in grad school. Like, that's horrifying. But y'all do the voodoo that you do do. And I'm like, I'm out. I don't know what we're talking about. Dyslexia? What? That's our scope? What? But with that growth, like our colleagues, OTs and PTs, now have a PTD and an OTD as like pretty much standard practice. Like you get your master's and you do, it's anticipated that you do the extra year. Yes. So- that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited about ASHA actually issuing an SLPA scope of practice because we're finally getting that cleared up, which allows the SLPs to focus on the highest level of our clinical expertise. Right. Which is the whole premise. We have PTAs that can do range of motion and they do some of the lower skill set objects so that the PTs can do the highest skill set. Which I'm not saying that if you're an SLPA, you have a lower skill set. I'm saying that the SLPs that are fully seed have that additional training, have that additional education. It's it's not anybody pointing fingers and saying you're you don't have it. It's this is just the way of the world. Well, and that's also where you know I see the importance of the supervisor supervisee relationship mm-hmm. in um in dealing with that and you can make that a comfortable positive thing change and a positive change mm-hmm. um because there are wonderful things and wonderful skills that can still be utilized by the SOPA within that scope but it just has to always be the responsibility of the SLP mm-hmm. the supervising SLP is always responsible for every aspect of patient care. Now, I've seen where an SLP that was seed was doing the feeding and swallowing therapy for the medically fragile child, but they were medically fragile from like GI track respiration, but yet the medically fragile child's language was just bar none and they had like phonological error patterns. And the SLPA would go in and do the phonology, leaving the you know, clinical expertise component and dysphagia management to the fully seed individual. Right. So I feel like that's a, that's, that's a nice way of putting that, all those words into a picture. Right. That makes sense. And the, but just remember that the decisions and the advancement in treatment is always under the decision making of the SLP, even for things that are within the scope and the, um, the treatment that you were just describing. Okay. So then how often, and I know this is dependent upon the state, how often should folks be doing supervisory visits? Well, um, interesting. You asked this question. Um, There are different forms of supervision and that are to be provided. It's not just a matter of a choice, um, but I'm going to use our state, for example. Um, But we do have to have a minimum of 15% of direct supervision. And if you're getting down to time for a 40 hour work week, that's going to be six hours a week mm-hmm. of direct supervision um, per and, and, or that um, there can be one of every seven visits per patient. So okay. it is an, or, but this is in South Carolina. Okay. This is in South Carolina, but, um, but direct and indirect supervision both of those are going to be components of necessary supervision for SLPAs. So direct supervision means that they have to be in line of sight. 
So that gets back to taking cell phone footage or a video or a snapshot or being in the other room watching over a webcam video. That is not in direct line of sight. It well, is- if you're if they're on site and are set up with a secure uh, video monitoring system uh-huh. to where they're able to watch, that is still in real time. Okay. And you are still on site and you're still, you know, many times you're going to be in the room. I mean, best practice is you're going to actually start out modeling. You're going to start out, um, you know, with the, with the supervisee, um, right there. Um, and the principles of supervision are always going to be fluctuating because those needs are going to change. Your patients are going to be different. And so the level of, um, support and the level of necessary supervision, even beyond this 15%, that's a minimum for direct. But depending on the clients that are being served, that may boost to a very high percentage before being able to drop off. Mm -hmm. But 15% is the minimum. And you're always having to look at what the needs are, what the needs of the supervisee are. And ultimately, it is the making sure that the treatment of patients and patient care have priority. <sighs> Say that again. Treatment <laughs> of patient care and the patient's needs have priority. Yes. Because they are the patients of the licensed and certified SLP. Yeah. And they are ethically responsible for providing mm-hmm. care and appropriate care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In all circumstances, mm-hmm. I mentioned direct supervision, but also even with indirect, um, the least that can be is five percent. So, what's indirect? So, if direct is in line of sight, and worst case scenario, if you're not physically in the room, you're on closed circuit in the building watching on a webcam. That that can that like in a clinic setup in real like, time. That nope. is still direct. Yeah, that is still direct supervision. Um, indirect um, for all patients, you're going knowing that the certified and licensed SLP is fully responsible for patient care. Mm-hmm. You're having to consult with the SLPA on the treatment, the mm-hmm. protocol, any changes that are so that consultation to be made, could be phone calls, sitting down, having a face to face conversation, reviewing chart notes. Yes, yes. Okay. Even a face to face that is not the direct. You know, you're you don't have the patient right there, but mm-hmm. you're still having to go over reports. You're having to review objectives. You're having to talk about revisions to the mm-hmm. objective that the supervisor has is responsible for. Mm-hmm. But that's also having to be communicated to the SLPA. There also has to be on the job training. So it's not just a matter of reviewing that information. You're going to have to make sure that they have the necessary skills because you can never assign anything to someone that they are not prepared to do. Mm-hmm. I, I have seen where just because somebody has graduated, they're considered free and legit straight to go. And they just get dumped on with some cases that are, they're not prepared, equipped, and um, don't have basic terminology for. And yes. when I brought that up to a supervisor, I was told, um, it's not your case. You don't need to worry about it. Well, I do want, since we're talking about SLPs and SLPAs, um, the there is a vast difference, not only in the level of education, but also even with the um, the type of experience that they're having. Because remember the CF who, well, if you're, we're talking about a CF who's just graduated in that first nine month to one year period, then they are serving more in a mentee capacity and the supervisor as a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also... Um, so you mean if it, they're a CF supervisor... It's more of a mentee-mentor relationship versus an SLPA and an SLP supervisor. Yes. Okay. The the CF is not um, in in a lot of cases the C um, the CF actually may be under an intern 
license. Mm -hmm. Um, Our state uses that. Um, Other states may go about that differently, but um, there is a usually a level of licensure for that. The degree has already been completed. It's an advanced degree. All of the clinical work has been completed. Everything for the ASHA certification other than this experience and possibly, you know, taking the praxis. Uh, Some people may not take it until the CF. We do require our students to take it while they're in that last leg of the program when they've already completed their core courses. But the requirements to be and SLP vary between states, but the requirements to be a CF are similar. I mean, that's that's national level certification, right? Like you have that's that's the same every which way you skin it. Except SLPAs can have different level of education, training, and even practicum hours. Exactly. Um, now, ASHA's scope of practice does um, have either an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree, but both of those have to be in the field. Mm-hmm. So it cannot be in anything else. So I'm not even aware of an associate's degree in I am. COMD, but um, I'm sure there are. Um, give me a second. It's in Missouri. Okay. Um, I think, I think, quote me, I think, double check, I think it's Missouri or Arkansas because this came up at a CSAP meeting um, where they had um, some of the technical schools had associates level um, speech pathology assistance programs. Um, it was, oh, if you're in Missouri, email me, firstbytespeechtherapypd.com. Tell me if it's a thing or if I'm just brain farting this evening. Um, but I feel like it was at that state that they had them. And they also had some audiology assistants that uh, they, um, which is a whole nother can of worms between that conversation sidebarring into the over-the-counter hearing aids. I'm find- looking at a chart and I'm finding it is not Missouri that has associates, but there are numerous states that um, that do allow this. These would be, um, I guess, with state licensing. Licensing, but we're looking at it: Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Arkansas, California. I was close. Arkansas, Missouri. <laughs> yeah, that allow for associates level. Hawaii, Idaho. Now, my question then becomes: There are many more, and but not all of them require. In South Carolina, we require that the SLPA has 100 hours of practicum prior to completion of their bachelor's degree. And a bachelor's. And a bachelor's. Yes. But some states, it's just a degree and no practicum hours. Or may only be a minimum of 25 hours. I'm thinking back on my clinical skill set when I freshly graduated with my bachelor's and was working in the school's thinking how much I have changed. And I look forward to saying that in 10 years from now, how much I have changed. But, oi, oi, I will be excited to read Ash's yeah. SLPA. So quite quite a variation in the experience, experiential component. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So um, you and I can totally go off on all the tangents, but how different um, the SLPA versus the CF scope of practice and supervision, we started in on that. And so what are some of the larger no-nos between uh, and the difference in the changes for the supervisor over the SLPA versus over the CF SLP? Okay. Um, I'm going to start with the no-nos from the ASHA scope. Uh And then I'll have examples from the SCLLR in South Carolina um, the no-nos there. So that's our labor and licensing regulations. They're the lovely people that get to say whether or not we get to go to work. Sorry. <laughs> that's right. So at the ASHA level, the restrictions, um, these are what SLPA should not engage in, um, should never represent him or herself as an SLP, um, cannot perform procedures that require a high level of clinical expertise or technical skills, um, They cannot, even though they are helping to collect data that is provided to the SLP, they cannot tabulate or interpret results um, and observations of feeding and swallowing of owls performed by SLPs. Um, 
The another no-no is treatment of medically fragile patients and clients independently. Mm-hmm. And um, they cannot design or select AA systems or devices. However, if a device has already been prescribed and is in place, they can work with, of course, uh, a patient who is using a device and can do some um, organization mm-hmm. within the um, within the device itself. But they just cannot make the selection of the device. Speech or generating make recommend- or non-speech yes. generating. Yes. Okay. Because that becomes a, um, you're actually making decisions there mm-hmm. and that cannot be done. That's super tricksy because I'm just thinking how many times in a session when I have you worked with a kid that had the options, like, you know, say school set up a PEX, but I'm right. working on a speech generating device, but they also had a low tech board. Right. And yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the the judgment is what's always pulled out mm-hmm. as far as restriction. Um, in South Carolina, most of a lot of what we have does tend to pattern or mimic ASHA scope of practice, even though when these were put in place was before ASHA, you know, had the scope of practice for SLPAs. Um, but here are some more no-nos, and these are from South Carolina. May not um, perform diagnostic tests of any kind. Um, an SLPA can assist the SLPA in the assessment, but wait, they can wait, never wait. administer. You said the SLPA could assist the SLPA. You mean the- oh, S- yes, okay. you're right. The SLPA can only assist the SLP in the assessment process, but they can never administer the test, nor can they interpret information from the test. So they could be gathering materials. They could, um, you know, if helping patients come to the assessment, um, but it's going to be truly in an assistant capacity, but never part of administration. So that is a huge no-no. Um, can never participate in parent conferences without the supervising SLP or a designee there. Um, If there is discussion of results, test results, they cannot be the ones providing that. That's where interpretation is falling in. But um, if the, um, but they can participate in parent conferencing, case conferences, um, as long as the supervising SLP is there. I'm thinking two thirds of what I feel like I do Monday through Friday is parent counseling, parents like drilling the home exercise program. This is what it looks like. Right. Interesting. Okay. So with the program, a home program that's in place, certainly after a session can provide that because it has been developed by the supervising SLP. Yeah, but that can change on a week to week It can. And those changes are going to have to be made because those are decisions by the SLP. This is a very fine line. It is a fine line. Um, and that's why these are concerns. Yes. I um, <laughs> <laughs> yup. So those are to name a few. Um, the SLPA can never select clients for services because that's decision making, can never discharge from services. Okay, wait, something just popped up into my head. What about screens? Are SLPAs allowed to administer screeners? Because I've seen a lot of home health companies offer hey, we'll do these free screens at your daycare or um, they do like kids day activities yes. and they've got SLPs and SLPAs doing screeners. Can They they can participate in speech language hearing screenings um, without any interpretation at all. So they can be part of conducting the screenings, but just cannot interpret results. So if it's a matter of yay or nay, and this behavior is either present or not present, can indicate that, but they cannot provide any explanation or interpretation to okay. family or to anyone else. That would That's where it crosses that line. Okay. Um, so I've already mentioned, you know, can't select patients for services, can't discharge because those are 
decisions that are made. Um, and, you know, we were talking about HIPAA and no, no information can be disclosed. So only the SLPA can only communicate information about that patient to the supervising SLP. Okay. Because that's where the responsibility lies. Okay. So what if, so then what about an SLPA who sees, and I'm, I mean, you have kids, like I regularly go out and I know I treat the least of these. Right. So like my, I'm in a special breed of special, but, um, there's lots of times where the children are theoretically just having delays and, you know, the SLPA is the one out there doing the therapy sessions and they feel like there's more and there's something else that's going on, but they can't convince their SLP to make referrals to quote unquote chase that. Um, so where, what can they do when they, you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I do. And that's a difficult situation for the SLPA, but there should be a, a line of communication because the information, the the routine data collection is shared and has to be shared with the supervising SLP. It, it has to go there. Um, the two should be able and do have to discuss patients. Yeah. And so that is part of that communication. Okay. Cause I'm just thinking sometimes I've had crucial conversations where I get frustrated right. because right. my hours will run hot that something's not getting done in the time with which Michelle thinks it's appropriate. I mean, I know whose time it is, but sometimes I, I like my timeline right. better. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. SpeechTherapyPD.com is an engaging, evidence-based continuing education site that offers over 450 continuing education hours. The best part? The information garnered can be applied in therapy immediately. It's functional and fabulous without the hassle of trying to translate technical jargon from a research article. Can I entice you more? Well, then get your suntan lotion ready because next summer, SpeechTherapyPD.com is hosting a CEU cruise. That's right. July 27th through August 3rd of 2019, the amazing, delightful, and oh-so-kind Char Beauchart, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, will be the featured speaker for 12-plus continuing education hours on a cruise ship through Greece. That's right. You heard it right. Greece. Want to get the preview or want to catch a preview of the information she's going to share? Then tune into her pod course, The Speech Link, which is also eligible for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Maybe, oh, just maybe, I'll see y'all in Greece. Okay. So you and I are geeky and we research this supervision stuff. Um, Also, side note, folks, with the 2020 updates, for ASHA, if you are going to be a supervisor, you must maintain and take a um, CEU. Crystal, do you have that lovely little factoid off of the top of your head? Well, the important thing is that effective 2020, the um, the training has to already be completed or is in process of being completed or you cannot supervise. SLPAs or CF or a clinical practicum student. Yes. Okay. It's all supervision and um, clinical education, clinical supervision is a specialty field in itself. It's a SIG. You can, you you can, you can pursue and do they have a board certified specialty licensure and supervision? No, um, that has been discussed, but it is not in place now. Okay. But it is a special interest group that you can join. Um, and folks, you've heard me talk about how much I love my SIG 13 for dysphagia and my SIG 12 for AAC. I don't know the SIG for supervision. Is it 10? 10. And then high, well, I have higher ed and supervision. So the SIG 10 and SIG 11. Um, Oh, you get, y'all got in there before, like swallowing did. Just saying. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Um, but uh, the reason, squirrel, the reason we go there is because supervision as well as an ethics class will be a requirement 
in order to do the thing that it is that we're talking about this yes. evening. And the, um, <laughs> I'm glad you asked about both of those. The supervision requirement for continuing ed or professional um, development is a one-time. Now, hopefully people are not going to stop at one mm-hmm. and knowing that it is a, an area of specialty that um, as long as someone is supervising, that they're, of course, going to continue looking and continue training and, and learning. But ethics does have to be one hour of ethics does have to be completed at every um, recertification interval with ASHA. So every three years, every three years. Yes. Hmm. And this also goes into effect um, 2020. Now, people can go ahead and start getting that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, a good advantage. You can go ahead and get a head start. But for that three-year interval, you're going to have to have proof of completing one hour of ethics. We say this, folks, because we need awesome supervisors. So do the thing. Okay, but back to the question at hand. We clearly research the supervision stuff, um, but what resources do you recommend for individuals that are currently acting as a supervisor or about to enter the workforce as an SLP or CF and want to make sure that they are acting within their current scope of practice as well as acting ethically? Okay. Um, anticipating <laughs> this question, um, I have several things and several <laughs> recommendations. Um, everyone who is practicing has to be familiar with um, HIPAA and with FERPA and those regulations and who comes under that. Um, of course, you know, HIPAA is going to take care of all patients and clients who we serve, but then knowing that FERPA is going to be educationally related, it will be um, students in schools. And also I had mentioned um, BabyNet, which is also considered educational and it does cover them under FERPA. So they're coming under both. Okay. Um, so having access to that information, um, Ash's practice portals are awesome. Yes. And so having, um, but even thinking about in the area of practice and scope of practice, anyone who is providing services has to be familiar with the code of ethics. And so for ASHA code of ethics, and then even for students, mm-hmm. there is um, pre-professional guidelines and it is written, um, these um, are written similar to the ASHA Code of Ethics. Um, they have five sections instead of four, but it also is worded to the student shall and mm-hmm. the student will. Um, so I think that's important even while students are still in school that there are guidelines that they follow as far as code of ethics. And they also, by nature, um, come under the ASHA code of ethics as well. I don't think I learned that until graduate school, uh, which is, I mean, and I don't know if it was just something that the overwhelming volume of information I had to suck in and absorb in undergrad, but grad school definitely, definitely got that then. So practicing um, SLPs who are supervising at any level, but especially if they're um, involved in supervision of students, then they need to be familiar with the pre-professional guidelines, just as the students should be. Um, I've already mentioned the ASHA Code of Ethics. The um, And then state associations, well, not state associations, they would also have codes of ethics, but the state licensing mm-hmm. boards, um, there are codes of ethics through that that are built mm-hmm. into the the system to the statutes and the regulations, and you need to be familiar with those. That's what you're having to come under at the state level. And then, you know, the ASHA code of ethics is at that level. So anyone who has their C's or meets one of the criteria for um, coming under ASHA um, code of ethics is actually going to have two codes that they're coming under. Okay. So a couple of thoughts. One, Folks, just because your supervisors tell you, and I don't necessarily mean your SLPA supervisor or your CF supervisor, it could be your administrator, administrator, your department head, if you're working in the public schools or if you're working in um, early intervention and it's your private practice business owner, just because they tell you that you have to do something, trust but verify. Because I have in the past had experiences where I was told one thing and then came home and thought about it and said, no, that does not feel right. And then verified and found out that 
the information that was verbally presented was in fact factually incorrect. Right. Um, I'm just saying real science and real facts are, it's a thing. Um, so trust, but verify. And be prepared to share that information. Yes, because at the end of the day, it is your license. On exactly. The um, also, when you were talking about the uh, practice portal, mm-hmm. there are position statements. And I know I have said this so many times on the podcast, but ASHA has position statements specific for early intervention SLPs. And folks, that's what most of us are. And it is all about natural environment. So don't bring the things into the homes to take them away unless you're trialing an AAC device and like bring it in for a few weeks and then swapping it out. Yeah, that one we, we can jive with, but don't bring toys in and then take them out. But check out the position statements because that directly impacts your shape of practice as well as the supervision that you need that information if you're going to be a supervisor to guide and shape the next round of therapists that come behind us. Right. And Asha's evidence maps. Oh, we love oh, them. Man, those are just terrific. And the, um, the issues and ethics statements, um, mm-hmm. which you were alluding to a while ago. Um, but, just on, on so many different topics. You know, we talked about confidentiality. They have a statement on confidentiality. Um, so many things are covered. And then for practice management, of course, scope of practice mm-hmm. comes right under that. So mm-hmm. um, being familiar with the ASHA scope of practice as for SLPs as well as SLPAs, mm-hmm. um, because they have both. Mm-hmm. And so what you fall under is what you come under and what you abide by. And it changes these, these standards and these practices and even the code of ethics gets updated every so many years. And as that gets updated, then they're going to be additional ethics statements as well. Okay. So here's the deal. Mm -hmm. When those ethics, especially when the code of ethics gets updated, when you have to readjust for your three year certification as a C's, when it says, because it gives you the little box, I have checked and read, blah, 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 changes. Blah, blah. Don't just like check the box. Actually legitimately read them. Because I know one of the things that happened with the newest code of ethic updates, if we suspect um, abuse in a colleague outside of speech pathologists, um, whether it be drug, alcohol, or whatever type of abuse, we are obligated and ethically bound now to report to supervisors. It not open just that. it opened that up, not just SLPs and audiologists. And that was, I remember that being quite the buzz. Like, right. yeah. Yeah. Also, wow. The fact that that was like juicy speech pathology gossip is like, talk yeah. about responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Woo. Yeah. Um, And then also, um, this is also from the ASHA website, but being familiar with the knowledge and skills needed at these levels. So knowledge and skills for an SLPA, Um, knowledge and skills for speech language pathologists and audiologists, you know, also have access to that information for them. Um, There is other information that provides state support person um, personnel trends. And so that's actually one of the charts that I was looking at when I was checking for states that um, acknowledge the associates or uh, an associate's degree as opposed to bachelor's degree. Folks, I'm serious. This woman researches more than possibly any other woman I know. And she comes in with a file folder and is fact checking everything the entire time we're having this conversation. So if our lovely, amazing producer, Chad, did not get all the ruffling of the papers flipped out, that's that's her with her printed spreadsheets. I mean, you got to love the thoroughness of this woman. Yay, Crystal. <laughs> and then, of course, Asha also has position statements, too, in addition mm-hmm. to the issue and ethics. So those are just wonderful resources that I would um, say that everyone should be familiar with. Um, Also with the state level requirements. So wherever you are, then to double check and see state licensure, um, state departments of education and what those requirements are, whether, you know, some states may have universal licensure and there is not a separate license or certificate for educators. Um, personally, Red it is- light. that, that means if you're an SLP in the schools versus an SLP in any other medical setting, 
Yeah. It means the same requirement for all. Yep. No differentiation. Yes. Oh, that's a hot button. Issue. And some states actually are are referring to teachers um, as licensed. And th- it drives me nuts, not because of the teacher, but because of the speech personnel in the schools. And to me, it's very confusing. It is um, potentially um, problem provoking. Mm-hmm. And because it is not the state license. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Okay. So, and then to throw in the piggyback that some states are involved in the ASHA interstate compact licensure agreement. So if you are, if you're in one of the blessed states that has already signed on to the interstate compact and in, right, is it 12? I think there's 12 right now, 12 or 16. That's close. Yeah. Um, that means if you hold a license in one of those states and then you move to one of the states that's involved in the interstate compact, then your license in the original state will carry you over, which is fantastic for our military brides. Right. I mean, my family is long line, Navy, Army, you name it, two brothers that went Air Force. And so that's fantastic. Right. Uh, also, if you're if you don't have a state involved in interstate compact licensure, reach out to your state association and say, hey, is this on the horizon? What can we do to support this? Trust me, those on your state association board, not your LLR, your licensing, but your state association board, love to hear feedback from their membership in what direction you want the state to go. I think you and I both can say we right. love, I love getting that feedback. Well, and it also, your state association should also be a terrific information source mm-hmm. as well. Yep. Yes, it should. Okay. All right. So Crystal, if listeners have any additional questions about SLPA scope of practice or ethical concerns, where would you recommend that they seek advice or who should they share these concerns with? Well, um, given that we live in many, many different states, um, I would start at the state level because licensure is going to drive the train within the state. Mm -hmm. So you always have to be familiar with that. And you can find this information on the websites for, you know, in particular South Carolina, it's going to be South Carolina Department of Labor Licensing and Regulation, um, but specifically the board that regulates speech language pathologists and audiologists. And ASHA also (laughs) has a... um, uh, a source that it is a one link that will take you to a web page that will you click on your state and you can see licensing, educator certification, um, everything is just in one spot. Nice, isn't that amazing? So that utilize it. That? Yes, yes. So thank you, Asha. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Once again. I'm just saying, you're not allowed to complain about how much your dues are when you find out that they actually do for you. So no more complaining, ladies and gents. No more complaining. Okay. So that's that's a lot of ground. I feel like we're going to have a lot of questions now. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So on that note, before we switch over to the the question section, um, Crystal, thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All of it. You're Mm. very welcome. Yay. Okay, go team. All right. So hold the line and we're going to switch over to the questions. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through SpeechTherapyPD.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Thank you.